You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Robert Lawrence Kuhn here, host of Closer to Truth. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to check out our other platforms like our YouTube channel, featuring thousands of video interviews with the world's leading scientists, philosophers, thinkers. And follow us on X and Instagram to stay up to date with announcements, giveaways, new content, and more. Thank you for your support wherever you follow us. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli about his expansive, exhilarating new book, White Holes. The book offers a scientific and poetic understanding of some of the most astounding ideas in astrophysics and cosmology. I absolutely love the book. I learned some too. Welcome, Carlo. It's great to see you again. Congrats on on White Holes. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for what you've said. And it's a pleasure to be again with you here. Before we focus on the science, and we're going to get into uh, quite a bit of depth, let's just explore the poetry for for an opener. Uh, I appreciate the the poetic parallelisms throughout the book uh, about the deepest ideas in physics and cosmology, black holes, white holes, time, irreversibility, often referring to Dante and his guides in the in the Divine Comedy. Is the I mean it's it's wonderful to read, but is there a a, a serious deep message here about the aspirations and quests of the human spirit to to discern what we perceive to be ultimate reality? <laughs> um, maybe yes, uh, or maybe maybe several. One is that I do think that the poetic imagination and the scientific imagination talk to one another. There is a there is a reciprocal uh, inspiration, inspiring. I would say, of course, they're very different. The methods are different. Uh, uh, validation is different. Uh, but there's a dialogue that goes back and forth. And specifically Dante, I mean, when I was writing this book, going to the horizon of the black hole, going inside, coming out the other mm-hmm. side, my Italian education just was screaming inside me. It's the same trip as Dante. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the parallel came natural to me. Yeah, it really it really works wonderfully in the book, uh, and it 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 flows, uh, and it's just a terrific read. All Thank right, you. look, this is how we're going to organize our our talk. You have three sections in the book: uh, black holes, white holes, and then the third section, fascinating on time and irreversibility. We'll cover each of those, and then I want to have a a final fourth uh, section, which I'm going to throw at you a a rapid fire round of of really big questions to which I want you to promise to give really short answers. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) That's our plan. But let let me begin with a a brief bio uh, of your magnificent career. Carlo Rovelli is a theoretical physicist who has made significant contributions to the physics of space and time, including loop quantum gravity, which we'll discuss. Uh, His books include Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, The Order of Time, and Helgoland. All are international bestsellers translated into more than 50 languages. He has been included uh, among the most influential global thinkers by Foreign Policy and Prospect magazine. So, Carlo, let's begin with part one on black holes. Give a, a brief definition. Most of our audience are very familiar with it, but for those who are not, 
tell us what it is. And then what I want to do is focus on where I think you have some very special ideas in terms of the, the inner tunnel and how that works and what is the singularity and where is that singularity? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, the question, what is a black hole, is not a completely um, a trivial question um, because one can give a mathematical definition of a black hole, uh, but I think it would be misleading today because we see black holes in the sky and they are very well described. Uh, uh, they're well described by the current mathematics, but I think the best definition today of black hole is those things that we see in the sky. Uh, because if we do that, we are not trapped by our mathematical definition that might confuse us. And we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, for instance, a mathematical definition which one finds in, in books is that a black hole is an event horizon, which is, um, um, which is a surface from which uh, um, things can go inside and never come out forever. And if one gives this definition, why one might blind... Uh, himself or herself uh, from the possibility that on the long future time things could actually come out. So I would say a black hole is uh, those ob objects within the sky uh, with extraordinary evidence of their existence. There are many, uh, they're all possible sizes, and they are very well described to some approximation by Einstein theory. So they were predicted by Einstein theory. and. Uh, uh, most of those that we see were formed by uh, stars which uh, have stopped burning and so they don't have the pressure that keep them open. The weight of the star uh, make the star sort of uh, collapse into itself, become smaller and smaller. And uh, what the Einstein theory predicts is that this uh, funny surface form, which is what we call the, the horizon of the black hole, uh, which is a, a sort of sphere uh, inside which everything has fallen and things can keep falling, and from which, at least for a while, we don't see anything coming out. And uh, uh, there is an enormous amount of density, so enormous mass in a small uh, region, the very strong distortion of space and time outside, and uh, all the astrophysical evidence about this object confirms Einstein theory, namely that there is this incredible distortion um, of the speed of time and the, the geometry of space in the vicinity of these objects. So that's, I would say, what a black hole is. It's okay. Uh, so in the sky, well described by GR. So just to give a sense of where these are, we find them at the center of if not every single galaxy, I, I think we, we, we now think that there is a black hole in, in the center of a galaxy, which gives some sense of galactic formation and such. Uh, there seems to be, there are other black holes of different sizes, as, you, as you've said. So there, throughout the universe, we now believe that there are literally billions of them. And, billions also, of them. and also in the early universe, through, uh, through James Webb Space Telescope, we now see black holes apparently occurring earlier than we thought they might should have been due to the collapse of stars. Does that affect the theory at all? Yes, uh, for sure we haven't seen all the possible black holes that could be out there. We were surprised by finding black holes bigger than we expected, surprised by finding black holes earlier than we expected in the universe. Uh, 
we see many black holes with masses of the order um, big, bigger than the sun, uh, which are the ones we understand better because we know the, the cycle of the life of a star and we know that the star big, bigger than the sun are likely to become black holes. <clears throat> um, and we see these huge colossal black holes in the center of galaxies that you say almost every galaxy have one of these colossal black holes in the center, million times the sun mass or even billions. Mm. Uh, so there's all this variety of objects out there. Probably, I would say, most likely we haven't seen all of them yet, all kind of black holes yet. Mm. Yeah, indeed, black holes is probably in one of the areas of cosmology where we've had the most uh, most new information. Uh, in addition to the expansion of the universe, of course, is probably the area of the of the greatest uh, knowledge in terms of uh, quantum physics and general relativity and, and how it all works. So the more varieties, as you, as you uh, say, that that we discover, uh, the more tools we have or areas to to test our physics. And so it's a yeah. remarkable area. So now, look, I want to I want to focus on on what I thought was some of the really exciting original aspects of the book. Uh, and and the first one is this tunnel uh, 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 um, uh, description. And you have some very nice illustrations in the book, yeah. it, 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 especially as time goes on, yeah. when there's when there's a shrinking of the black hole due to Hawking re uh, radiation that inside the tunnel can still get longer and bigger and, and, and infinite. Yes. <laughs> that, 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 that sounds yes. very counterintuitive. Yes. Um, let me, let's me uh, uh, say this. In the book, I describe uh, as careful as I can uh, what happened on the horizon itself, near the horizon and, uh, and just inside the horizon, uh, and the time distortion, because time is slowed down dramatically near the horizon. So I give a careful description of that. And this is just relativity, Einstein theory. And then I describe if we go in, imagine we approach a black hole, we cross the horizon, we're inside, the geometry inside. And there is a common uh, misunderstanding, uh, quite widespread, uh, which I try to correct. And this is not my original idea. I'm just sort of explaining general relativity a bit, be a bit better. Uh, it's what follows from Einstein theory. Uh, it's a common misunderstanding about what is inside. Mm, people sometimes have the idea that inside uh, there is something static, like outside, right? It's a black hole, nothing happens. If uh, unless something falls in you, you can imagine you, you sit outside the black hole and just wait and the black hole stays there. And it's a common idea that inside nothing happens also. And uh, if you can go down, you can fall to the center. And in the center, there is uh, the so-called singularity, where is uh, uh, the point where general relativity does not work anymore. Now, this picture is wrong because the inside of black hole is not static, is not stationary. So there is no picture of uh, the internal geometry of black holes at at some time, at any time, the same. The, inter the interior of geometry is dynamical, keep changing, keep moving, and the geometry keep moving. And uh, most importantly, the singularity is not down at the center. So the best way of understanding uh, the internal geometry is to think that the inside is very big. So you have a, the, the horizon, which is a sphere, you go in and to your surprise, if you want, 
the inside is much bigger than you would expect from the size of the sphere, which is of course allowed by general relativity because uh, it allows distortion of, of space. So this is a huge distortion of space. So in, in a sphere like this size, in, inside there is a huge thing which you can describe as a long tube, a very, very long tube. Uh, and as time goes on, two things happen. So imagine you go in, uh, it's dynamics so or changes. One thing is that the tube become longer and longer and longer. And in the meanwhile, the angular size of the tube shrinks around you. So you're inside, uh, the, the tube becomes longer and longer. You never get to down there. Down there, there's still the, the star that originated the, the, the black hole. Um, and and, and the, 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 this tube shrinks around you uh, and in, in a short time, in a, your, your clock time there, uh, in a short clock time there, um, the tube shrinks around you and becomes a singularity. So it becomes, the curvature grows until the point in which uh, becomes infinite, or if you want, general relativity is not reliable anymore. You expect something else to happen. Now, now during that process that the tube gets longer and thinner, if you will, I don't know if these terms are proper. Yeah, uh, I think it's very good. It's longer and thinner is the right term. Okay. Um, but, it, and you also say that the, the original star, which was falling into the singularity in, in its frame of reference continues to fall. Uh, and, and, and so what is driving that over time? Um, is it the, the, the original, the original singularity is, is driving that dynam dynamism in the, in the black hole as the tube gets thinner and longer? So far, there is no singularity, uh, at all. This is just classical right. generativity. This is exactly the prediction of Einstein equations. What is driving this dynamics is the dynamic of space and time itself. It's like gravitational waves. It's the, uh, actual, uh, dynamical evolution of the shape of space as described by Einstein equations. So the Einstein equation, Einstein theory, uh, it's a dynamical theory about the shape of space and the shape of space time. So, um, the star that has fallen is still down there, uh, at the, at the bottom, if you want, in the, uh, at, at the end of the, this long uh, tube. Uh, and the tube itself is shrinking, as you say, become uh, thinner and, and longer, which means that's a key point. Um, at some point, there is a singularity, okay? The singularity is where the Einstein theory goes wrong. Now, where is the singularity? The singularity is not down there where there is a star. The singularity is all over. It's wherever you are inside the black hole, at some point, you're the 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 universe, the space shrinks around you and you fall in, in, and you find yourself in a singularity. If you want an analogy, imagine you enter in a room and you're told that somewhere there is a, you're going to be squeezed. Uh, a black hole is not that there's a corner, a, a corner of the room down there where there is a singularity. Wherever you are in the room, the room is squeezing around you. So you find the singularity in the future of wherever you are, not so in a point in space, but in a point in time, so to say. Yeah, so that's that's the key idea. The singularity is not at a specific point in space at the at the center or at the uh, of the of the of the black hole horizon. It's a point in time after right. this event occurs. Now, when you say you reach that singularity, is that a a step function, a, 
a a a a very fundamental change at that point, or is it is it a it's obviously happening gradually, but is there a a a, a, a fraction of a of a, of a of a nanosecond and at a second that that it actually occurs? You reach the the, the so called singularity gradually, uh, but uh, in the following sense. Um, if we just take Einstein theory, which is uh, generically reliable until something goes wrong, uh, the singularity is a point, or, or if you want, a, a moment of time. Uh, so uh, it, it's the end of the evolution when this uh, tube shrinks and becomes a line. However, this is a point. Uh, we expect that when the tube is very uh, thin, uh, Einstein theory is not good anymore hmm. because uh, that's when we expect quantum phenomena comes in. And quantum phenomena are always there, but they're negligible, completely negligible, until the curvature is very high. So at this point, you expect quantum phenomena to start becoming more and more important. And therefore, Einstein theory not be reliable anymore. And that arguably could be at, at, at when something gets to the Planck length or, or, or some fundamental aspect of, of yes of that's, exact, that, that's exactly the case so if you compute the curvature uh, as time passes uh, uh, and you approach this uh, shrinking the curvature uh, gets to a Planckian value and uh, uh, the wait, 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 that's 10, a, 10 to the minus the, uh, 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 minus 43 or 30 what, what is the Planck length so we just get a it's, it's 10 to the, uh, in terms of length, it's 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So it's very small, which means in terms of curvature, uh, it's very high. It's imagine uh, uh, a piece of paper rolled uh, to, make a, to make a cylinder, right. uh, which is a diameter of 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. Cream is, cream is more. It has to curve very much. Yeah. Okay. And this curvature is what uh, uh, we expect if, if anything, if we understand anything about quantum mechanics, we expect that at this point quantum phenomena must be uh, must come in and be be sure. major, dominate. We, we talked about the time frame. I'd like to understand the what you call the falling or collapsing of the star as a process into the singularity uh, from two two uh, reference frames. One is from the reference frame of the star itself. And the second is from our external reference frame. What what would the times be in each of those cases for from the initial collapse until the final singularity? Okay, good question. Uh, I can answer this question only in part. I will be able to answer this question much better after we go to the to the white hole. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, and I can say the following. I can say the following. Take a biggest black hole that we know that we have seen, say billion uh, solar masses, uh, and imagine that we, you know, we take a starship, we go there, we cross the horizon, and we go in. Okay. Hmm. Now we are inside. The space is shrinking around us, and uh, the time it takes to close around us. Uh, is of the order of uh, hours or maximum days. So uh, we don't have much time there to do many things. So the inside of black hole, if you want, is huge in space, but is short in time. Very rapidly, to, you get to this quantum phase. Mm -hmm. Now, for the moment, I cannot answer um, uh, what happened in the mean how much time is, is corresponds outside 
because they are disconnected. I cannot from the inside send a signal and say, hey, I'm falling in the singularity. Uh, now, now, now I'm in. Quantum effects are coming because if I send this signal, it's not going to go out. So I can't compare for the moment, but I will soon. <laughs> okay, very good. So we, we, we now want to move to a, the transitional ideas from black holes to white holes. Yes. And one of, the, one of the concepts, there are several concepts that you introduce in black holes. One is the concept of a bounce as you yep. get to this uh, singularity. Uh, what that means. The second, we've sort of already covered the granular, the granular nation, uh, uh, nature of of uh, of the space time environment. Yeah. Uh, as this as the contraction squeezes the the tube inside the black hole uh, before the, si the singularity. So, uh, just introduce those concepts, which I think lead directly to part two, which is on white holes. Yeah, and this uh, to introduce this concept, the important thing to say is now we are uh, jumping out of classical generativity of Einstein theory. So to know what happened next, uh, we need a theory of quantum gravity. We need to know how uh, quantum effects uh, uh, affect space-time. And uh, uh, there's no consensus theory of quantum gravity. There are, uh, because there are some theories out there, but there are no experiments so far or no observation that supports them. Uh, but there are some theories. So we can use uh, the theories and the theory on which I've uh, worked a lot during my life, as you mentioned, is loop quantum gravity, which arguably it's uh, uh, most developed or among the most developed uh, tentative theories of quantum gravity. So we can use it and uh, have an educated guess of what happened next. And what the theory uh, tell us, uh, it's two things. One is that uh, uh, there is a quantization of space in the sense of uh, uh, quanta, grains, um, very similar to the quantization of light, uh, which is the quantum phenomena that the, the light that we see uh, has a granular structure. We can think of it as made by photons. More precisely, when it arrives on a screen, light arrives in, in dots, in individual dots. So these are the, the, the individual grain of light. And we know the size of this grain for even frequency of light. Now, similarly, what the quantum theory of gravity, what loop quantum gravity uh, predicts is that the continuous space of general relativity also, it's granular exactly in a very similar manner. And we can predict the size of its quantile space, its grain of space which means that you cannot go smaller than that. These are the minimal size sort of space. There's nothing, there's no space smaller than that, uh, which of course tell us that uh, um, this tube cannot shrink more than something because there is nothing smaller than something. So something must happen. The second uh, defining feature, I would say, of quantum mechanics is probability. Namely, um, things don't happen according to a deterministic equation, but uh, happen probabilistically. And the best way of thinking about this, I think, is the old way of uh, Niels Bohr uh, in terms of quantum jumps or quantum leaps. Uh, the best way of understanding how light, the photons, is emitted by an atom uh, it's that uh, the electron on an atom is some orbits. These orbits are quantized, again, discreteness. And the electron jumps from one orbit to another and emits a photon. That was um, uh, Niels Bohr's original picture of quantum mechanics. 
So what quantum mechanics predicts is the probability for these jumps to happen. And that's its core of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is about what's the probability of jumping from here to there. And essentially, it doesn't tell us what happened in between. In between, there's a wave, there's a superposition. There are funny things that we philosophers like to debate. Uh, but the, the strong aspect, the, the clear aspect of quantum mechanics is that given some initial condition, it tells you, well, there's a probability of jumping there. And this is what, these two ideas is what allow us to uh, compute and have an intuition of what happens at the, at the singularity. Because the discreteness block the, the contraction, the shrinking, and then there is a probability of a quantum jump into something else. Which we call tunneling in, in, in other contexts. Yes, the two um, defining and most important aspect of quantum theory that comes in here are uh, granularity and uh, uh, the quantum leaps, uh, probability. Uh, granularity is... Uh, uh, the it's clearly shown, for instance, by the fact that light is made by photons. Uh, there is a granular uh, discreteness, quantized aspect of uh, um, quantum things. And once you apply this to uh, generativity, namely to space and time, you obtain the key result of loop quantum gravity, which is space it itself is granular. So you have a minimal size of space, which means that the black hole cannot shrink uh, the tube cannot shrink more than this minimal size. Um, and the second, the quantum leaps, uh, it's the, uh, the fact that in quantum mechanics, you predict probabilities and you can jump from one classical solution to another classical solution, to one classical trajectory to another classical trajectory, like in Niels Bohr, uh, quantum leaps, orbits of uh, electrons. And uh, these two features of quantum mechanics are what uh, allows us to uh, have a good guess of what happens uh, instead of the singularity. But, uh, okay, that's, that's, those are critically important. And the quantum leap, uh, I love the way you describe it in the book. It, it, there, there's really nothing in the middle. It's not like there's a process in the middle. It just goes from one to the other in some in some bizarre, strange way to our to our macroscopic uh, intuitions. Uh, and and we often heard the word tunneling that there's a, a tunneling between the two, but it, but the process itself is, uh, is mysterious or instantaneous in some strange way. That's correct. And uh, uh, this is a mystery of quantum mechanics in general. So uh, this tunneling effect, like a particle that can go through a, a wall, um, always have this uh, uh, strange feature. We don't have an intuition about that. But here now, it's particularly mysterious because what is standing is not a particle from one position to another. Mm. It's space itself, space-time yeah. itself that goes from one configuration to a different configuration. Okay, so that's the perfect um, a place to now introduce some, some definitions of, of white holes. Uh, I like, as you put it, in a black hole, you can enter, material can enter, but nothing can exit, not even light. And in a white hole, precisely the opposite, you can exit, things can exit, we'll talk about information exiting, uh, but nothing can enter. Um, and that you say that black holes don't need another solution for Einstein's equation. It's the same solution, it's just reversed in time. So give us some color on how all that works. 
Yes, white holes are not uh, definitely not an invention of mine or or, or my colleagues. Uh, are a, a solution of Einstein equations or predictions of of general relativity, uh, like black holes. Uh, for a long time, uh, black holes were just a, 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 a something that general relativity allows to happen, and white holes is also something that general relativity allows to happen. And in fact, as you say, uh, they are almost the same as black hole in time reversed. Uh, now, time reversed is not any particular mysterious uh, sense. If you if you think of a ball uh, falling toward the floor, uh, that's a trajectory permitted by classical mechanics. And if you think of a ball bouncing up, it's sort of the same trajectory reversed in time. Like you take a movie and project the movie backward. So in the same sense, a white hole is like a black hole uh, of which you take a movie and you project the movie back in time. So everything happens backward. And it is uh, a prediction of uh, um, generativity. For a long time, uh, people didn't believe that black holes could actually exist in the universe. Uh, now the question is, could white hole exist in the universe? Mm. Yeah, and, and this is a, a fundamental question. You, you, you're obviously... A, a, a great promoter of the of the theoretical concept of white holes, which is fas a fascinating probe of reality, whether they exist or not, and you're agnostic on whether they're real, um, and and that's that's just good science. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that that you 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 state, and it took me a little time to feel comfortable with it, that a white hole can be indistinguishable from a black hole. They both have material gravity works the same, and that. From the outside, it might be difficult, if not impossible, to, to, to discern the difference? Yes, this is very tricky. In fact, uh, uh, it's just a general relativity fact, and it took us quite some time to get uh, to get our mind around. I have a few pages in the book in which I go slowly uh, toward uh, showing how this is possible. Um, you, you, what distinguishes a black hole from a white hole is uh, what happened before and after, in a sense. Um, so it, you have a collapsing star, there's no black hole, and it can form, and uh, now there's a black hole. And a white hole is something that uh, at some point the star can come out, and then there's no white hole. So there's not the same thing, because they behave in this different way. But as long as nothing goes in and goes out, if you just uh, sit near a black hole or sit near a white hole for a while, you cannot distinguish the two, and that's quite uh, surprising. Um, one way of realizing that is that uh, we say that a black hole is something you can enter and not exit. That's true. But if you sit near a black hole, you don't see things entering uh, because you see things slowing down and approaching the black hole and never entering. The reason being that the light emitted by something takes longer and longer to come out. So. Um, if if uh, if I go near a black hole, near the horizon, I send you a message, you receive it today, and then tomorrow I send you another message, um, and you receive it in a month, and then I, I, I send you another message just before entering, and you receive it in one year. And just a moment, a moment before entering, I send you another message, you receive it in 100 years. So if, while you wait, you always see me approaching and never coming in. This is a funny distortion of time of general relativity. And that's for a black hole. That's for a black hole. No, but a see, normal black hole. Yeah. A normal black hole. Yeah. 
which means we don't see things actually entering a black right. hole. Okay. Uh, uh, things do enter. If you go there, you do, you can enter, but if you're in a, at the distance, you don't see anything enter. So what you actually see is neither things coming in nor coming out, neither from a black hole nor from a white hole. That's why they look, they look the same from, from the outside. Mm -hmm. But if you go there, it's completely different. So a black hole, you actually, if you fall to a black hole, you just go in. If you fall toward a white hole, Okay, you clash against the matter which is going to come out at some point hmm. before getting in. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll get into that particularly in, as we go into part three. But just want to take a a a, a brief aside and uh, talk about a, a meeting that occurred that that you focus on uh, when you were two years old between Roger Penrose and David <laughs> Finkelstein, uh, which which uh, I took note of because both are contributors. Uh, to closer to truth, uh, uh, and we've we've had them on, and people can see their their video. So, why was that so important in this whole understanding of black holes and eventual white holes? Yes, um, <clears throat> I'm happy to talk um, of them because they're two people very dear to my uh, to my uh, to me as uh, effectively, but also also fundamental for my science and fundamental, I would say, for the science of black holes in general. Um, Roger Penrose got the Nobel Prize uh, recently for having understood a lot about the mathematics of black holes. Um, but he, uh, when he was a student, uh, he was interested in else. He was not interested in general relativity. He was interested about uh, uh, <clears throat> things related to quantum mechanics. Finkelstein, David Finkelstein is the person who actually understood what happened at the, at the horizon. Until him, people thought uh, more or less what Einstein thought, namely that uh, the universe stops at the horizon. There's nothing on the other side, mm. okay? Which is a mistake, and it's a mistake that many of my colleagues still do, by the way. Mm. Um, Finkelstein understood through a calculation, a simple calculation that I, I, I do, I, I give to my student in the class, that if you fall toward a, 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 a black hole, from the outside, people don't see you entering, but you do enter. Uh, you do enter and you go on the other side and you can predict what you see on the other side. And when he understood that, this was the, the 50s. In fact, I was two years old. He went to London and uh, uh, gave a talk. <clears throat> and younger Roger Penrose, uh, came down from uh, Oxford, I believe, uh, uh, to to London, and after and was very fascinated by this talk. And the two started talking to one another, and uh, Roger Penrose got fascinated by general relativity. So he basically switched and got into general relativity, fascinated by David Finkelstein. David Finkelstein was fascinated by what Roger Penrose was doing with quantum, so started developing some idea about quantum and gravity. Uh, which were very influential also in the physics that I have done. Uh, so they too uh, swapped their interest, so to say. Uh, and out of that came the Nobel Prize to, uh, to Roger and a lot of quantum gravity ideas, which are informing the kind of science I'm, I'm telling you about. Mm. Yeah, and, and both, that was a, a formative, uh, both ideas helped you very much in forming your ideas on on uh, oh, quantum gravity, yes. quantum gravity, and then black holes and now white holes. Uh, so <clears throat> the key point here, I don't know if this is the right point too, is that the 
the, the, the open questions uh, was what happened at the end of this black hole evolution. Yeah. And as long as white hole are concerned, the open question is that how can a white hole can be born? Uh, from white hole things can come out, where do they come from? And the key idea yeah. of black-white transition is exactly that uh, the death of a black hole is, a bore, is, 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 is what makes a white hole be born. So at the end of the shrinking of the tube, this quantum jumps takes us into a white hole and everything comes back, so to say. That's a core of the theory. And, and so that's the bounce, so to speak, that the, the, the bounce right. is the conversion of a black hole into a white hole when it reaches uh, the, uh, the Planck limit uh, as defined by loop quantum gravity. Exactly. Exactly. There's this bounce, which is a quantum jump, is a tunneling, if you want, uh, which goes from um, a classical solution of Einstein's equation to another classical solution of Einstein's equation. Mm -hmm. And we know that quantum mechanics allows this transition. So there are some computations that, uh, that have been done that give the probability for this to happen. And we see that there is a high probability. This is, uh, so the more you approach the singularity, the more probability this happens mm -hmm. becomes high. Mm -hmm. So here is uh, the hypothesis, because of course we're not sure about that, right? This is what the theory predicts. Uh, there's no observation so far that confirms it. The hypothesis is that inside the black hole, uh, arriving at the singularity in the future, you jumped into a white hole, and then you're in a white hole, and everything that was inside now can come out. Mm -hmm. and, and as we'll see, this uh, is a solution, maybe not the right solution, to the information paradox on the horizon, which is a... A, ma a major focal point and, and your, your solution seems very elegant, which doesn't necessarily mean it's correct, of course. Um, and, but once again, at that bounce, <clears throat> it's, it's nonsensical to ask what happens in that bounce, how that happens. That's, that's just the, the, the brute fact of tunneling or the quantum leap. Yes. And it's in a sense, the most fascinating things, because here we're really going to the core of quantum gravity, right? Quantum gravity, it's a, a way of thinking reality where you don't need things to happen in space and in time. Mm -hmm. uh, you're jumping from one space time to another space time through quantum probability, so to say. Uh, is, is it in, in principle possible to get experimental or observational data to support uh, any of this? Yeah, of course. Um, it could even be practically possible. So there are two uh, two directions. One is direct detect detection of the resulting white hole. So this resulting black hole is small because they happen when when the the black hole has the jump happens uh, when the black hole has become sufficiently small for this to happen. Because when the um, black hole evaporate through Hawking evaporation, become very small. At this point, you're deep into a quantum gravity regime. So from the outside, this is when you see things happen, right? At the end of the evaporation. Um, so the white hole is small and loop quantum gravity uh, gives indication that um, they're stable or semi-stable. They can live very long time. So the prediction here is very precise. There is a, a semi-stable particle object uh, at a given mass that we can compute, which is of the order of the Planck mass. Planck mass is not very small. It's the a fraction of a microgram. So it's a mass of a hair, roughly. Mm -hmm. 
so the prediction is that there could be in the universe a lot of little things, the mass of a of a hair floating around that have no charge, no they don't interact, uh, strong interaction, weak interaction, just gravitationally, uh, and they float around. So this could be detected, and uh, uh, we are working on how to detect these things. The technology seems not too far from the possibility of detecting these things using some quantum detectors. Um, and so the best would be to to see these things, see these Planck mass things, right? If this a Planck mass, is almost all clearly a quantum gravitational thing, because it's right the the scale of quantum gravity. <laughs> Now, the possibility which I find extremely fascinating, and uh, it's really what motivates the interest in all that, is that a lot of these uh, little Planck math things could be the mysterious dark matter oh. that astronomers see in the sky. Mm. So if uh, in the early universe, uh, near the Big Bang or before the Big Bang, who knows, uh, small black holes have finished the evaporation, they're transformed into white hole. Uh, there could be all these little things around. Uh, and if so, there should be some matter which is dark, uh, which only interact gravitationally. And look, there is, it's called dark matter. Mm -hmm. It's tempting to say, aha, these are these things. Of course, we don't know, once again. Carl, that's the, the perfect segue into part three, uh, perhaps the most fascinating part of the book time and irreversibility when we begin talking about the possibility of these white holes, could they be dark matter? Um, but let's get into these white holes because you you caution us in terms of thinking as, it, as the black hole shrinks and the horizon shrinks and it becomes microscopic, um, does not mean that the interior of the black hole becomes smaller. In fact, I think you say even the interior can continuously become larger even as the horizon shrinks to this very small size and that all the information uh, which we want to define what that means in terms of matter or or literal information uh, is is maintained in there. So, uh, I mean, this this boggles the imagination. I just want to ask, you know, is, is what I said a correct understanding of the book? The, Yes, it's correct. And I think I think the, there is a, a common misunderstanding today in theoretical physics that small things cannot contain large information, uh, which is only true as long as uh, uh, the horizon is eternal, if you want, as long as the black hole remains a black hole. But a black hole can becomes white hole, so whatever is inside can come out. And as you said, um, this is general relativity, a small horizon does not mean a small inside, a small horizon, so a small black hole could have a huge uh, space inside. That's just classical GR that shows that. And inside there, there could be an enormous amount of information. Now, information is not something mysterious. Is that if you know exactly what what inside there and, and what is outside, you can reconstruct what was in the past. That's the meaning of information. Yes. So um, if you know the past, you can predict the future, Principle, if you know the future, you should be able to rec reconstruct the past, if you could know everything, okay? But to reconstruct the past, what is outside is not sufficient. You also need the inside, because some information has gone inside. And inside the black hole is enormous amount of space. And uh, because of that, uh, there is uh, 
container for all possible information that you want. And is there a limit of the internal size as the, the external size is, is finite and very small? Or is, Yes, <clears throat> it depends on the original mass of the star oh, okay. uh, that fell in. Okay. So you, you start from a star, which is a certain mass, you evolve for a certain time, outside time, which is the time it evaporates, and from the time and the original mass, you, you have a finite volume inside. So inside the volume is not infinite. It's finite. It's bigger if the original star was larger. Right. And, and, and as you assign information, you can't assign information to, to anything smaller than the Planck length, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the internal uh, extreme curvature is what's causing the, um, the amount of space to be so large so that each Planck length could or, 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 or larger than that can contain a, a single bit of information related, yes. related to what the original star was. Yes, very good, Robert. You're, you're pointing to something, uh, to something very interesting here. Remember, there is, the, the inside shrinks in, 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 uh, in, in, one dimension, in two dimensions, but one dimension becomes longer and longer. Yeah. So, uh, it's shrinking and longer, but it's becoming longer faster than it shrinks. So the volume is increasing. It's not becoming small. Yeah, yeah. A, 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 amazing, amazing way of thinking about it. And it, 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 it there is definitely a coherence to it, um, which is, is is very very exciting uh, to see. Um, what what are the implications of this uh, in terms of the uh, the expelling of the information? Uh, uh, is this uh, an automatic process like like Hawking radiation would be with a black hole or, or, or is there is there some uh, external factors which affect that no we've been computing what could be the emitted radiation from the white hole uh, which is can be computed quite easily from the constraint of all the all the game I'm not going to go in uh, technicalities uh, um, essentially, a white hole, whatever is inside, whatever field you have inside, electromagnetic field, the fermion field, uh, whatever excitation has to go out because it's a white hole. So slowly everything has to leak out. And when completely the energy has been thrown out, then the white hole disappears. Okay. Exactly like the black hole doesn't exist in the past mm. before things come in. So we are back to known physics, right? The unknown physics is only the jump. Mm. That's a that's a strength of the of this scenario, if you want. What happened before, after is just solid physics that we control. The part we where you have to have quantum gravity there is just a jump. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you make the point that the expelling of the information from a white hole takes much longer than the Hawking radiation in a black hole. Yes. It's Yes, this is a constraint because uh, uh, one can estimate the amount of information which is inside, uh, which is large, um, essentially because uh, uh, for those who understand technically the things, there's an entanglement between the inside and the outside. Outside is, uh, is not a pure state, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a missing information which is inside. So we can estimate the information inside, but there's a very little energy because the, the white hole is small. Mm. So you need... Uh, to have a lot of information with little energy. This is possible. It's perfectly possible because if you have a lot of photons, low energy, 
you have a lot of information. Each photon can be, say, polarized up and down. Sure, sure. And you can make the energy as small as you want and have as much information you want. But uh, low energy means long wavelength and uh, low frequency, so long time. So then you need long time for everything to come out. Yeah, and just to be simple, because the black hole can be huge, it can be the size of our solar system for a large black hole, uh, there's a lot of area, in that, and, at the, and that same information would be in a white hole, but now the size, the mass of a hair grain. Exactly. And Very so, good. And so that, that same information has much less surface area to escape from, so it'll be many orders of magnitude of, of more time to occur. Correct. Correct. Exactly, Robert. Okay. Now, you, you, you then make the fascinating um, uh, uh, jump, and I don't, I don't think it's a quantum jump. I think there's some logic to it, uh, where you now describe the difference between the past and the future, yes. that, that, um, that we can know the past, speaking macroscopically, but not the future, uh, but we can choose the future, but we cannot choose the past. Now, these obvious things, as we think about time, you then uh, have derived from this whole theory. Yes, the, the, the connection is this. The, the bounce by itself from what black to white is time symmetric, right? It's like bounce. Uh, it's uh, uh, a white hole is time reversal of the black hole. Uh, and the time distortion of the process is colossal. Now I can answer a question you asked me before. Um, the time outside and the time inside. Uh, so if you have a, a star with a big mass, it takes forever to collapse. Mm -hmm. And then it takes, it jumps and it takes forever to finish. Okay. So uh, the entire process can last, uh, if the star was big, billions of years. But if you jump in, okay, you go through the bounce, assuming you survive, uh, you come out very fast and you're immediately in the future. So inside is a half an hour, outside is many billions of years, mm -hmm. which is mind blowing this yeah. uh, so uh, the process is a is sort of a shortcut to the future mm. so time here seems to be completely uh, uh, deformed colossally and and but and that's a surprising thing uh, the evolution the dynamical evolution uh, always going one di direction so the entire process is dissipative in the sense of the second principle of the dynamic entropy right. keep growing it's not coming back. <laughs> and this is marvelous. Uh, so the pro process has a time direction and is given by entropy. And then in the book, I ask, wait a minute, uh, why, where does uh, the time direction come from? Yes. In the phenomena that to us are more time directed, like what you mentioned, right? We remember the future, we don't remember the past. Oh, sorry, we remember the past, we don't remember the future. We can decide what to do, where to go for dinner tomorrow, but we cannot decide where to go to dinner yesterday. There's nothing to do. So there seems to be something dramatically different between past and future. And yet physics tells us that that's not the case. It's only entropy, which means how things are arranged. It's only accidental. So I go through this careful, try to careful description of how come that just because of the way things are, just before dissipation, just because the energy is concentrated or, or diluted, that's a source of the fact that we remember the past and not the future. We can decide the future and not the past. Mm. And I think this is fascinating because the distinction between past and future is so dramatic for us 
that to think this is just accidental, just how things are arranged, uh, is strongly counterintuitive, and yet I think it's real. Uh, and you use the concept of equal disequilibrium uh, as a as a, a mechanism to be able to uh, intuit this better. Yes, because uh, um, uh, if you take a system, a physical system, and you wait long enough with some conditions, it goes to equilibrium. And when is it equilibrium? Okay, uh, all temperature are the same, everything equilibrates. Then you don't see the distinction from the past to the future. You only see distinction of the past to the future in the equilibration. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so therefore at some point something is out of equilibrium and that's what generates a, a direction of time. The, 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 the flowing out of it is the direction of time. Okay, Carlo, I want to go on to part four, and this is this is the challenge for both of us. I'm going to throw out to you some of the biggest questions that that humanity has uh, has uh, envisioned. I'll um, try. <laughs> many of them are the the core, closer to truth, uh, and we we have fun with it. But all of these are literally uh, uh, derived from the work that you've done on on black and white holes. So. Try to answer from from that perspective. So, okay. uh, <laughs> n- number one, uh, we started with uh, past and future and, and how you've determined it uh, with with equilibrium, disequilibrium. What are the implications for the philosophy of determinism, where everything, be, you know, Laplace's demon and all of that, or different versions of, and human free will? Ah, great question. Um, I have strong opinions about that. Um, I think you have strong opinions about everything. <laughs> oh, uh, I think this is a criticism. No, I'll, no, no, it's a, it's a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment. On closer to truth, it's a compliment. Absolutely. Um, I think that. Let me try to get a short answer. I think there's no contradiction, whatever, between what we generally call free will and determinism or quantum probabilism or whatever. Uh, I think the contradiction comes before because we overestimate what is it to be free. Um, namely, uh, if we think that to be free means to be outside physics, so to say, and influencing things to sort of magic way from the outside, uh, that is not true. Uh, we are free because what happened to the future depends on what happened in our brain. Uh, to depend on us, because we are our brain. But our brain is physical. So in that sense, we decide uh, without any contradiction to determinism. Yeah, and, and that's a c- compatibilist kind of argument based on, on, on the physics as opposed to based on philosophy. I accept it. That uh, doesn't mean I believe it. I, I accept that's a, that's, a good, that's, a, that's a good coherent answer. Next, the Big Bang, the origin of, of our universe, at least. Uh, this is obviously a, a major issue, in, in, indeed the central issue, perhaps in, in cosmology. Um, and there are many theories uh, in terms of how it began or a big bounce. Uh, is the work that you've done on white holes from this bouncing from black holes, are there any potential implications of that, not just for an individual of the billions and billions of black holes, but the implications of that same process, that same concept of a bounce applying to the entire universe, uh, at least the observable universe as we know it? Yes, um, the two phenomena are completely different because 
one is black hole is a small thing if you want the universe is a big thing it's different and the geometry is different but there is a similarity uh, there are some analogies in the physics of the bounce inside the black hole and the physics of the possibility of a big bounce, namely the universe, uh, um, uh, the Big Bang uh, uh, coming from a previous contracting phase. Mm. So um, I, we don't know what happened at the Big Bang, I think it's, fa it's fair to say, uh, but I find uh, the calculation that suggests that uh, there could be a, a, a bounce, not, not a Big Bang, so not the Hawking start from nothing, but actually a contraction and then an expansion. I find is a plausible. It's a plausible answer that I find quite convincing, but not far from being sure. And does is it does that in essence resurrect in a different form the steady state idea that the universe is eternal, going from a contraction to from expansion to contraction to bounce and then starting over again? With with that. Could that have been infinite in in times past, as opposed and as well as infinite into time future, uh, or does that itself have to have a starting point? No, I would distinguish completely what we are studying now about the Big Bang from the big questions of. Uh, but then, what about the origin of of, of everything? So I, I think it's a mistake that we make every time we understand a little thing. We sort of want extrapolate to infinity. Uh, um, I say, a scientist, uh, uh, we had no idea what happened in the past. We learned 14 billion years. Now we might learn 14 billion years in a little bit. Uh, let's not from that to extrapolate too much. Uh, we have no idea whatsoever on the long range in the past, in the future, especially. Okay, um, let's talk about the the holy grail of quantum gravity and and quantum space time as you expanded it um, and quantizing space time. Yeah. Uh, uh, loop quantum gravity and string theory, arguably the two arch rivals uh, currently. But there are obviously other things to unify general relativity and quantum mechanics. Um, it, just from my level of understanding, it seems that there was a, a great deal of progress made in both of these separately, of course, the 1980s, the 1990s, your work in the 1990s, but less so in the past few decades. Uh, is, is, that a, is that a correct observation? And if so, why? Maybe my bias. I've seen in, the, in this century uh, solving uh, issues in, uh, in, in loop quantum gravity, which were confused uh, uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, like the classical limit, for instance, uh, showing that you get general relativity classically and things like that. Um, the situation is obviously open, so the future will tell. Uh, but uh, I am more confident that what I was 10 years ago, not so much for uh, empirical successes of loop quantum gravity, which they haven't, so just theoretical development. Uh, but because string theory has found itself in a lot of difficulties, uh, empirical difficulties, experimental difficulties, the cosmological constant has turned out to be positive rather than negative. Supersymmetry, low energy has, has turned out not to exist when people expect, expect it to exist. Um, Black holes at CERN have not been produced when people imagine that they could be produced and so on. There's a long list of things like that. So um, I would say, let me put it this way, the big problems in the 80s of, uh, of string theory, like computing, finding the 
the, 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 the standard model from string theory, computing the, the, uh, constant, the coupling constant of the standard model from string theory, uh, finding the right Kalabiyao for doing that and so on, understanding why three generation. They have not, there will be not only no process, but forgot about it. People that don't even work about this is hmm. possible. Or finding the fundamental formulation of string theory, the basic equation. Uh, just very few people, maybe 20 people in the world still working on that. Um, the big open problems, internal problems, look quantum gravity has been solved one after the other one. We know the fundamental equations. We know how to do the classical limit. We know how to try to apply to a calculation to a black hole to... So I'm more confident. Now, does this mean that uh, string theory is wrong? No, of course. I mean, and uh, but I let me put it this way. Can, can, either, can either theory, loop quantum gravity or string theory, be falsified in the Popperian, Popperian sense of, you know, supposedly the test of, of, of real science? Now, whether that is a legitimate test of all science is, is a very big open question in the philosophy of science, the multiverse and various aspects. Are, are, are they science because you, you can't falsify it in, an, in a normal way? But is it possible to falsify either theory uh, in principle? Yeah, in principle, see, either can be possible falsify in principle. Uh, but I would say that historically, uh, theories are not most commonly, sometimes yes, but most commonly theories are not just falsified or not. What happens is that theories pile up slowly mm. element in support or pile up slowly element against. Mm. And at some point, it's like in life, right? You know, rarely you just have a strong proof just yes that's if you have a theory you know that predicts uh gravitational waves and they exist predict black hole and they exist predict the deflection of life science exists then you believe it okay and if it predicts um, electromagnetic waves like maxwell theory and you make a radio then you believe it and if you have a theory that uh, you know predicts something it doesn't come predicts something it doesn't come predicts something doesn't come you say come on you don't need a falsification <laughs> i think uh let me put it this way uh, it's not yes or no. It's degree of belief in in theory. Okay, it's a thing. I, I I like that, and I I agree with that, and that applies to the multiverse and other kinds of things as well. Let's exactly. Let, 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 let me ask you about uh, the nature of uh, consciousness and the collapse of the wave function. I don't know how many thousands of papers uh, have been written in philosophy and even physics uh, on this, and and, and you're a um, shall we say a debunker of the idea that you need an observer uh, and, and some sentient observer to, to convert the quantum world to a classical world. But innumerable uh, vast theories of, of existence have been based on that idea. So I want to give you a few seconds to uh, debunk it. Um, it's hard in a few seconds, but I've never been convinced at all. I think the quantum theory has to do with quantum phenomena, with, with, with uh, actual phenomena. I think quantum theory is very subtle. It's uh, I've written about, about interpretation of quantum theory, possible, but I don't see any connection whatsoever between the stranger to quantum mechanic and consciousness. We humans, you know, once we're confused about two things, we tend to say, oh, maybe one explain the other. No, I mean, this uh, one is something that happened at the scale of, you know, small actions. Uh, consciousness is something that happened at the scale of our entire brain. It's a completely different scale. I don't see any connection whatsoever. Yeah, I would love to see a connection, but you know, I'll tell you a secret. Don't tell anybody. I sort of skew to to what you're saying as well. It's it's very hard to see. I'm not uh, going to tell anybody. <laughs> 
Okay, that leads to the question of consciousness itself, where I would say you take a deflationary view. I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that as a fact. Uh, you have this wonderful sentence where you lump stones, thunderstorms, and thoughts uh, as the same kind of thing. Yes, uh, I think once again that consciousness um, is a, a very complicated happening, things of happening, uh, uh, which we in large part haven't well unraveled, uh, but it's not anything magic outside the complication of the rest of the universe. And I think it's a, it's a perspectival mistake uh, uh, to think that, uh, um, that there is something very, very different than anything help, anything else happening there. The physics that you present um, is what you call relational physics, yeah. uh, which seems to add some very um, original ideas and new thinking to how we conceive of, of physics, still in a very physical way, nothing, nothing mysterious uh, uh, about it. But how does a relational physics uh, enhance the, for lack of a better term, a mechanistic physics that maybe we've been used to? I think that in the mechanistic physics we've been used to, uh, we miss some piece. Uh, it, do it doesn't seem to work when we think about quantum mechanics. It also doesn't seem to work uh, substantially when we think about consciousness, uh, right? Uh, I think that if we realize that physics is more not about how things are, but I think uh, appear to one another, and there's nothing consciousness there, it's just two stones. Uh, the position of one stones with respect to other is with respect to other. With hits, uh, one stone hit another stone, it's acting on the other one. It's a relative thing. I think if we realize that the universe is better described in this relational manner, we have a tool for understanding basic physics. We have understood for taking away some of the mystery of quantum mechanics, because after all, that's what quantum mechanics is telling us. And we have also a tool uh, for realizing that consciousness is not so different than other things. Because the way universe appeared to me as a subject, after all, is not so different to the way, you know, universe affect a stone. Hmm. Um, you, you say that this kind of relational physics, uh, and I'm going to quote you because I want to be careful with the words, that this vindicates, you said, um, a very mild form of panpsychism uh, but then you add, of course, that the same fact undermines some of the motivations for the more uh, market or strong forms of panpsychism. So go, t tell me how that works. Um, panpsychism, it's a, it's, it's a word that uh, uh, literally means everything is uh, psyche or, or mind. Or there's, a, um, there's an aspect to everything that has some proto proto-consciousness aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the, 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 the ambiguity of the term is that uh, the, the proto, it's uh, what is a proto-bicycle? I mean, what is a proto-thunderstorm? What is a proto... So um, I think what, what is our mind, it's very complex things that depend on the fact that we have eyes, we have brain, we have neurons, we have, we have flesh, we have, we, have, we, have, we have a social relation with language, all, all that. Right. Now, if you strip this, strip this, strip this, strip this, strip this, take away everything, um, I think you don't get to stones. 
because of what we said before, you get two relations. Mm. So if in that sense, there is something in common between our consciousness and everything else, uh, not because everything else has some sort of thinking or subjective aspect, but because the best way of describing everything is, is, is relational. So in that sense, uh, the way we think about consciousness, which is, a, which is in, in some sense, a relation between us and the outside, uh, it's the best way of thinking about reality, mm. but not because our consciousness is special, uh, and, and not because, uh, we have to, in, uh, increase physics with something which is not in the equation we already have. I think the equation we already have are better interpreted as describing how systems affect one another. This is what a variable is, a variable of a system. It's the uh, something that capture how the system affects something else. Hmm. Uh, and the reason that, that you say that this could be a very weak form of panpsychism is uh, driven by the fact that you know that there is this thing called consciousness that needs to be subsumed in the in the physical world. Is, is that right? Because if you if you didn't have consciousness, you'd feel no motivation to to talk about a weak form of panpsychism. Um, no, I would say. Look, uh, if if you ask me more simply, do you like pans, uh, panpsychism? I would answer no, I don't, yeah. because I think it's over overestimating what what what. What, what psychic is, what mind is. I would say, forget about it. Uh, but then if you push me, and that's why I came out with that uh, phrase that you mentioned, and, and, and say, wait, isn't your relational with me a sort of extreme sort of psychicism? Yeah, because uh, we are, um, look, uh, what I believe is that what we call consciousness and the rest of the universe are the same kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a kind of stuff which is very much more generically is much more similar to fields and stones and the way they interact with one another than our thinking. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk just, just very briefly about the most fundamental things. Uh, take the law of physics. So very simple question. Are the laws of physics as we've described them, as we know them, immutable or can they change? I would say that we shouldn't overestimate the laws of physics. These are good, uh, uh, good uh, ways we have found to conceptualize some regularity around us. Mm. So they are not uh, holy stuff written in the sky that govern the universe at all. They are products of our human uh, social. Uh, activity who right. look, looking around say look things work this way so let's call it a law, a law, a law of physics take newton law okay newton law is fantastically attraction works very well but then you know it's just a rough approximation of something else that happened i think they're all like that hmm. uh, so would you call yourself a, an empiricist or a radical empiricist to say you know we know the regularities but we have uh, we have no uh, epistemological powers to go below that or, or because there's a difference between an ontological approach and an epistemological approach to the limit of, of the argument about the laws of physics. So is, is your argument epistemological or ontological about the um, an, an empirical view of the laws of physics? Um, it's my argument is about the nature of science and the nature of knowledge in general. 
Uh, I think that the nature of knowledge uh, shouldn't be uh, overestimated. Uh, we know the world. Uh, I think it's a fact that we know the world. I think it's real. There is a computer there. But I think that the meaning of that, uh, we have to close the circle. I am myself a piece of nature. And uh, so in my worldview, uh, there is nature with interaction. There is me who is uh, seeing this computer. And so there is something in my mind which approximately reflect what is out there. And the question about the ultimate reality, about the ultimate um, uh, status of laws, uh, I don't, from my perspective, are not well-posed questions. Okay. The question from the perspective of God, which I don't, think is my perspective. Um, let me let me continue with another inappropriate question. Uh, I, I like to do that, especially at the end. Um, with, with these regularities, <laughs> with, uh, with, with the regularities of physics, however we want to call them, and I agree laws are adding more to it. It's, it's, it's certainly a human construct of what we see. But what is literally below that ontologically, it, you know, I agree that we can't know. Uh, but would you, would you, I'm going to give you three terms, which, which would be your favorite about the laws of physics necessary uh, in, in some fundamental sense that they, they have to, they're coherent. And when we find it, we'll see that they couldn't have been, couldn't have been otherwise. Uh, a chance, which we've seen in string theory, 10 to the 500 different um, topological structures that would lead to different laws of physics and just we pick out through through uh, the anthropic principle that we have to we, we we have to be where it is, so it's it's not a surprise, so some kind of chance or some sort of a brute fact, which is different than than chance or necessity. So ne ne necessary chance brute fact. Um, if, if these are the options, I would say a sort of brute fact. Okay. Okay. A very general brute fact that the generality is what makes that make them interesting. Good, good. I, I, I like I like that. I like answers that are that are clean. Uh, last question is if we if we put put this all together, uh, what we like to ask the question a closer to the truth question is what exists, and what we mean by that is what what is the absolute minimum uh, number or or and description of categories that would describe reality from, from your perspective. Take all reality, what are the minimum number of categories that, that you could say? I mean, quantum fields, I mean, pick what you want. Uh, good, so uh, um, give me one minute. From the point of view of the current understanding of the physics, uh, uh, there are general covariant quantum fields. Uh, which are the main ingredients that we use to de describe uh, uh, reality today. <laughs> um, I would absolutely not from here make a uh, any big uh, philosophical commitment to our grasp of a foundation of anything. I think that foundational question uh, are ill, 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 Ill posed. I've been strongly affected by Nagarjuna, philosopher, Indian yeah. philosopher of 2000 years ago, uh, or maybe Wittgenstein in our tradition, who says, careful, some questions are ill posed. And the question, what is the foundation of everything else, in my opinion, is one of these ill posed questions. We have approaches to reality. We have a number of approaches to reality. They're consistent or 
they're sort of consistent. We're working on the consistency. I don't think one is more foundational than the other. The perspective of the subject is not more foundational than the other. Um, the, the reality of matter is not more foundational than the other. The laws are not more foundational than the other. Um, but we can choose a perspective, physics, okay, which, you know, has little to do about, little to say about chemistry, biology, social sciences, morality, and all that. And from the perspective of physics, today, uh, general covariant quantum fields, it's what the thing from which we can derive the rest. Carlo, this has been absolutely terrific. I can go on for all day. Uh, the book is, is wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, an enjoyable read. It's a, it's a, qu a quick read, but it is so engaging. Uh, White Holes, I recommend it for everybody. It, it, it is an enriching experience in, in many respects. So many thanks. I, I loved our conversations. Uh, viewers can watch dozens of TV episodes and hundreds of exclusive videos on cosmology and fundamental physics, including certainly many with Carlo Ravelli uh, <laughs> on the Closer to Truth website and Closer to Truth YouTube channel. Also, other people we've mentioned, Roger Penrose, David Finkelstein, and others, Lee Smolin, Ed Witten, Stephen Weinberg, Kip Thorne, all of these on the Closer to Truth website and Closer to Truth YouTube channel. Carlo, once again, terrific. Great to see you. Congrats Thank with you. the book. Thank you very much, Robert. That was great. I really liked it. Thanks, Thanks everyone, for watching. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.